This morning's reading is from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, page 827. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are gentles, Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I met a lady the other day who's a hospital chaplain at um, Women's and Children. And um, I was asking her about whether or not people actually want to talk with her when they're there in hospital. I was wondering whether she found that when people are sick, whether they, and and really sick and, and, and sometimes dying whether she found that that meant that people wanted to talk about God and spiritual things. What she said kind of surprised me because she said often older people don't want to talk to her, but she finds younger people are sometimes more open to chatting to her as a hospital chaplain. That was the complete opposite of what I was expecting. And so I asked her why she thought that was the case. And she said that often the older people will identify as, as Christian or as Anglican, or something like that. But it seems that it's not really something that has much personal meaning to their lives. A study done in Australia this year would actually seem to back up what she says. The number of people identifying as as Christian, this study found, was 59%. 59% of Australians identifying as Christian. But only 7% of Australians in this study, identified themselves as being active practices of Christianity. Now, I asked the hospital chaplain why she thought it was that young people were actually more happy to talk with her. And she said that she thought it was because many people these days see themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And so they're keen to talk about spiritual things, but they're not keen to connect in with traditional religious structures and organisations. And again, the the study would seem to back this up. If you add up all the different categories that are there, it's a bit confusing like that. But when you add it all up, it shows that 63% of people 
63% of Australians interviewed, are somewhat, at least somewhat, open to spiritual things. But they're not thinking that a regular connection with a church is the way to experience spiritual things or to express spiritual things. I think this genuine openness and, and yearning for something greater than ourselves is a good thing. I think 63% of Australians are right to detect or at least to be open to the possibility that, that there's something greater, something more wonderful than ourselves out there. And I also think it's little wonder so many Australians are thinking that the traditional church has got nothing to offer them in terms of helping them to encounter this God. You know, the sad truth is that way too often we as the church have only offered people a dead religiousness rather than a personal relationship with a living God. There's been way too much hypocrisy and it's not our job to defend it, it's our job to expose it. But having said that, today we see that God's plan in creating the church was not for a dead organisation. It was not for a hypocritical religious structure. The church God makes has got very little to do with massive, cold stone buildings. It's got very little to do with liturgy and hierarchy and priests and bishops and archbishops. God has in mind something that's liberating, something that's beautiful, something that's living. God creates the church to be a family where he himself lives amongst us It's a very different picture to the one that people today are rejecting. What we see in the part of the Bible that we're looking at today is that God is actually a huge fan of the church, but not necessarily the church we might think of. God is a fan of the church that He is making. The last few weeks we've been looking at a letter in the Bible called the letter to the Ephesians. And we're up to a bit in the letter where Paul tells the people that he's writing to that they need to remember where they've come from, they need to remember where they are now and they need to remember how they got to where they are now. And these are actually three things that we need to remember too. So first we need to remember that we were once far from God, Paul says. Second, we need to remember that we've been brought near into God's new society by Jesus. And third, we need to remember that God has brought us near to be a part of something wonderful, his household, his temple. So stick with me today if you can, because seeing the church God's way means actually some pretty confronting things, some confronting things about ourselves. Like last week, it means seeing some things that that we probably don't want to see. So let's look at the first thing that Paul tells us that we need to remember. We need to remember we once were far from God. Look with me where Paul says this in verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, so that's non-Jewish people, which I'm guessing is, is most of us here. So remember... That, those called, um, that, that, they, that we were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So that's Jewish people. 
which I'm guessing is not very many of us here today. Verse 12, what do they need to remember? Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul says they need to remember that before they had Christ, these non-Jewish people, their situation was very bleak. They were far from God. Now, like last week, we might find this hard to accept. Last week, I spent quite a bit of time demonstrating that the storyline of our lives is not actually lined up with God's storyline for the world. That's what the passage was showing us. Our storyline is not neutral to God. What we saw last week in the bit of Ephesians we're looking at is that our storyline is actually opposed to God, even though we might not see it that way at first. And I spent a bit of time showing us that God's actually right to be angry with us because of that, because our storyline is opposed to Him. When Paul says here that they were separate to Christ and so they were cut off from God, he's also saying the same thing to us, non-Jewish people. We were separate. When we were separate to Christ, we too were cut off from God. And as I said before, more and more today, us Australians are seeing ourselves as spiritual, but we're not interested in identifying with any set ideas or beliefs. And so many of us are not keen on this idea that we're reading here, that if we don't identify with Christ, then God doesn't identify himself with us. We find this a pretty confronting thing to read, that God considers us far from him, despite even our spirituality. And God considers that without him, we're without hope. Again, despite our spirituality. We're pretty hostile to that idea. But don't think this is offensive just for us today. It was offensive when this was written too. It was even more offensive because many Australians may be spiritual, but back then it would have been more like 100% of people who were spiritual. It's not that people back then had no spirituality or no alternative beliefs. They were very genuinely religious. But still from God's point of view, they were without him. Because for all their spirituality, in his view, they still had rejected who he really was. It may be offensive to us that God rejects our spirituality, but what it comes down to is this. Does God have the right to determine who he is or do we have the right? This week at um, my place, the Young Adults Bible Study Group that gathers... They were playing a YouTube clip. I'd, I'd gone into the kitchen to make um, drinks and came out and then this, this YouTube clip was playing it. It's from Talladega Nights. You know, fess up now if you've actually seen it through. I won't make you keep your hand up if you enjoyed it. <laughs> I've actually never made it the whole way through. I've, been, I've seen lots of bits of it, but I, I haven't seen it in one sitting. Will Ferrell, who you can see there, plays Ricky Bobby, a kind of bogan race car driver. And in one scene, this one, they're saying grace and they're actually fighting um, as they're praying over who exactly they should be praying to. Mostly they're fighting because Ricky Bobby wants to 
be praying to baby Jesus because that's how he likes to think of Jesus. And some of the others are trying to tell him, look, Jesus grew up, he was a man. And so Ricky Bobby says this, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. It's actually a pretty funny scene. And even though, like the rest of the movie, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous, there's actually some truth in what's going on here. It's actually what we do whenever we think that we can shape God however we want Him to be. Whenever we say, I like to think of God like this, or I don't like to think of God like that, we're doing the same thing as Ricky Bobby. But in God's eyes, when we do that in real life, it's not funny. It's actually personally offensive to Him. And what we think of that all comes down to whether we think God has the right to determine who He is or not. Does, the, does God have the right to say, this is who I am? This is what I'm like and this is what I'm not like. Does God have the right to be offended when we're not interested in knowing Him and experiencing Him in the way He wants to be known and experienced? About 10 years ago, I read of um, a fan of some celebrities who gate-crashed the wake after a funeral and she was eventually escorted away. She was trying to get some photos with uh, some celebrities that she loved. Now, that person thought she really loved those celebrities. She was deeply into them in one sense. But did they have the right to say, this is not how we want you to show your appreciation? Why would we think that God can't do the same? Paul says here, we need to remember that when we didn't have Christ, God wasn't happy with us. We were separated, excluded and without hope. We didn't really know Him, even if we thought we did. But then Paul goes on to say some, that, that things have changed for them and that they need to remember how they've changed. And, and this is our second point, because Paul says... Remember, we've been brought near into God's new society by Jesus. So have a look with me where he says this in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ here means the death of Christ. His death makes it possible for people who are far away from God to be brought near to God. But it should make us wonder how. You know, how does a death do that? Well, we we get a bit more of an idea how in verse 14. Paul writes, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Back 2,000 years ago, If I wanted to go to the temple in Jerusalem, the closest that I I would have been able to get would be the outer court because I'm not Jewish. And so I I wouldn't have just been able to get any closer to the temple than than that outer court. I would have actually been met with a a dividing wall, a stone barrier that was one and a half metres high. And on that barrier were big stone blocks, carved uh, signs that said, don't come any closer. 
1871 and then in, in, again in 1935, they actually found two of these signs. They dug them up that used to be in the temple at Jerusalem. This is one of them. It's the Sorig inscription and it says, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure round the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's not very welcoming, is it? It's pretty hostile. The Jewish people were supposed to be divided from the rest of the world so that they could bring a blessing to the rest of the world. They were supposed to be different so that they could be a nation of priests introducing the rest of the world to God. But instead of rising to that task, history showed that, they yes, they divided themselves off from the world, but as a general rule, they had simply become hostile to the rest of the world and non-Jewish people were hostile back. Nobody likes being told that they're excluded. But Paul says, in Jesus' death, God has somehow made peace between Jewish and non-Jewish people. And it's because Jesus' death somehow removes any barrier that excludes people. Jesus' death, it sets aside any kind of religious rituals or rules that would be required of people. Things like circumcision. Things like rules around religious food. Things like rules around the temple. They're all put to the side, all of them. All the things that divided the Jews off from everyone else become irrelevant because Christ's death makes them irrelevant because it accomplishes a purpose that those rules and laws couldn't accomplish. Look at verse 15. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here we see more of why Jesus' death on the cross brings people who are far away near what Jesus was doing on the cross was making peace between people because he was making peace between people and God. Whether we are Jewish or non-Jewish, Paul says here, it doesn't matter. Whether we're close to God or far away, it doesn't matter. Both groups, all people, need to be reconciled to God. And God says here, and last week, actually, if you remember, and the week before that, and the first week that we started in this series, God says to us that we can't reconcile ourselves to Him. Only Jesus' death can reconcile us to God. Have you ever experienced a really poor attempt at reconciliation? I've got four kids, so I reckon I experience poor attempts at reconciliation on a twice-daily basis at least. I'm forever saying to my kids, you need to say sorry to your sister. But it's really hard to teach kids to reconcile. See, I, as, I, as I'm telling them that they need to say sorry, I, I usually try to tell them that they don't just need to say sorry, but also why they're sorry. Otherwise, they just sort of yell sorry at each other 
And it's a really poor attempt at reconciliation. It sounds a little bit like this. Sorry! And the body language says even more. Most of the time, they're not sorry. And they're not really interested in seeking reconciliation in the way that the other person wants and needs. They just want to be allowed to come out of their room or they just want me to leave them alone. Well, that's kids, but adults can be the same. We too can be really poor at reconciliation, especially when we're not interested in seeking reconciliation in the way that the other person wants and needs. You know, if someone has really wronged you, really wronged you, it only adds insult if they half-heartedly attempt to reconcile or if they attempt to reconcile in a way that they want to rather than in the way that does respect to you. Because what it says when they do that is, I think you're making more of a big deal out of this than it really is. So imagine a husband has an affair and attempts to reconcile with his wife by bringing home flowers. What does that communicate? Well, it says that he thinks it's a small deal. God here wants us to see that our wrongdoing of him is not a small deal. In fact, it's so serious that we can't even provide the means of reconciliation. we got nothing to offer. But God does. He has the means. See, the death of Jesus, what does it communicate to us? It communicates that our wrongdoing is incredibly serious. It tells us that the cost to make peace is incredibly high, but nonetheless, God was willing to pay that cost. And it says to us that turning our backs on this means of reconciliation is folly and it's adding insult upon insult to God because turning our backs on him in this is saying, God, I think you're making more of a deal than this really is. To expect that God should be happy to have some other attempt at reconciliation from us is actually to say that Jesus' death was unnecessary. God was well-intentioned, but ultimately misguided. That's not how God sees it. He sees it as the only way that we can be brought near. And on top of this, God sees Jesus' death as the way that he's creating a new society. Look at verse 15 again. We read, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Through Jesus' death, we're not only at peace with God, but we're at peace with each other too. See, God doesn't join non-Jews into Israel. That's not what's going on. That's not his plan. He joins non-Jews and Jews into a new humanity. Jesus gives us all access to the Father by the, the one and the same way. So that instead of people being divided from each other, we all have access to God by the one and the same Spirit. It'd be easy for us to miss just how huge this is. Humans are experts at dividing. We're experts at segregating ourselves off according to all sorts of categories. Paul is saying to us here that we need to remember that by Christ's death, the greatest division in humanity has been overcome. Remember, Paul is writing to churches that are made up of Jews and Gentiles gathered like this together. 
If we're now identified with Christ, we're a part of a new humanity, God's new society. And in this society, there's none of the usual divisions of humanity. Any other thing that that we might be divided over, like race or gender or age or class or social status or education, politics, sporting allegiance, those divisions, they're no barrier to us being at peace with God and at peace with each other. And this brings us to our final point. Paul says, remember God has brought us near to be a part of something wonderful. And we see this in verse 19. He writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. The idea of household here is that we're now a part of God's own family. That's what that means. We're not merely citizens of God's new society. We're also his children. And those, those around us, sitting with us, are not merely fellow citizens, but they are also our brothers and sisters. We are a family, a more permanent family than any biological family. The church is not a building. It's not an institution. That's not what God creates in Jesus. Australians, they're right to reject those things. The true church, though, is something beautiful. It's made up of people who would not normally be thrown together. People who could even be natural enemies. Jesus' body was broken to grant us all access to God. And we've come, become one based on what He's done. We've, we've been bonded together with an unbreakable peace. Paul says we need to remember that. We need to remember who we are. It's natural for humans to divide, but not in God's new humanity. Look at what God wants for us, his new humanity in verse 20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church is not called to be a dead organization. It's called to be a living organism. We're called to be a living, growing, vibrant, changed community at peace with God and at peace with each other. With Jesus himself as our cornerstone, the most significant stone that shapes the whole building. Our lives are joined together and shaped by Jesus. In the first week that we started looking at Ephesians, I said that in this letter, Paul explains God's overarching story for his world. And we saw that this this story that, that God is shaping is all about Jesus. It's all about all things coming under him, under his rule. But here we, we get to see a bit more detail of that overarching story. Because we see that God's overarching story involves him raising up a family which Jesus creates by his death and which Jesus leads in his life. One of the things that I, I love about TNE is the way that we reflect this. So just one example of that is, is we're a spread of all ages here. I mean, who's the youngest here? 
Who's been born most recently? Chloe? That'd be right. No, Abigail. <laughs> Asleep. Anyone brave enough to have a go at who's the oldest? No one. <laughs> anyone want to dob anyone in? But we have, we as a group, for so many reasons, would not naturally be brought together like this. Have you ever thought about that? What brings us together like this? We don't naturally belong like this. But in Jesus, we are bonded together through his death with an unbreakable bond. This is an amazing thing. And we're going to see a bit more of this next week and the week after that as well, as as Paul continues on in the letter. But for now, doesn't it just change your view of church? I mean, I joked last week that um, this gym doesn't feel much like heaven. It's a bit too cold. There's not enough blankets to go around. But actually, this community, this community that we have is something wonderful. It really is a taste of heaven. Not because of ourselves, but because of what Jesus' death creates us to be. We are a people, each one with equal access to God, a family at peace with God, at peace with each other, God dwelling amongst us, growing us, shaping us. It's true that we've not arrived, we don't always live up to our calling, but nevertheless, we have been irreversibly made to be God's new society. And if we're going to walk consistent with our calling, we've got to remember these things. We've got to remember who we were without Christ. We've got to remember who we now are in Christ. And we've got to remember how God got us here. If you've heard what God's saying here today and you've realised that He still considers you to be far from Him, don't forget that He's also saying to you how you can be brought near. The reconciliation that God requires is nothing short of Jesus' death in our place. Our lives are brought near and and are tied into God's overarching storyline as we are tied into Jesus. Have you done that? Have you tied your life's story into God's overarching plan, into Jesus? We might find ourselves offended that God doesn't consider our spirituality without Christ enough. The truth is that God is happy for us to be offended like that. Because usually it's not till we're offended that we realise that so is He. And yet, nonetheless, He's provided a way that we can be reconciled to Him. And we have to ask ourselves, we have to decide, what are we going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Let me pray. Lord, what you are creating in this world is so wonderful and remarkable. It's, it's hard for us to take it in. A new society, perfectly at peace with each other and with you, with none of the hostility that so naturally comes to us existing. And yet, Lord, when we look at the church, your church, it's very easy for us to dismiss just how amazing that is when we look at our weakness, our frailty, our imperfections, our failures. And yet, Lord, when we consider that none of this is a barrier to Jesus, none of this is a barrier 
to us being reconciled to you because Jesus has done it all at the cross. We see that even in our weakness, what you are doing amongst us is profound and brings you all the more glory. We are a fractured people naturally, but in Jesus you bond us together permanently for all eternity where we will gather with you, with each other in a perfected world. Lord, help us not to lose sight of just how wonderful this calling is. And Lord, help us to live it out even now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.